we've been <coughs> talking about how to stop this uh, 12 links of uh, dependent arising from recurring so that uh, we are able to gain liberation from samsara, from uncontrollably recurring rebirth with uh, all the different types of suffering and so on that are part of uh, the cycle. And we saw that uh, the way to do this is to uh, get rid of the first link. If we get rid of the first link, which is unawareness of how we and everybody exists, then uh, we will not build up the second link. In other words, we won't have disturbing emotions as a mechanism to try to defend that impossibly existing me that doesn't correspond to reality. Uh, and if uh, we don't have these disturbing emotions, we won't, or disturbing attitudes, we won't uh, act uh, in a uh, compulsive type of uh, manner, driven by those uh, disturbing emotions and that unawareness. So we will not be uh, loading any more karmic uh, uh, aftermath, potentials or tendencies onto our consciousness. And uh, then because of that, uh, we also will not activate any of these uh, karmic potentials because uh, we won't have this uh, throwing out of the net of me and mine in terms of uh, what we feel, uh, our happiness and uh, unhappiness. That is a net of this impossible me that identifies with uh, I'm so miserable and I don't want to die and I don't want to give up my body and uh, leave my loved ones and so on. And uh, if... Uh, we uh, get rid of that, then we won't activate this uh, uh, karmic potential that uh, is there, and uh, we won't generate any more rebirth with uh, conception, and then the whole development of the uh, fetus with the uh, emergence again of the uh, aggregate factors, and uh, we won't have this aging and dying. So that is the uh, basic scheme. We spoke about how uh, the self doesn't exist and how it does exist conventionally. And uh, we uh, introduced the whole uh, teaching on imputation. And we saw that the uh, self is an imputation on the uh, aggregates. In terms of uh, imputation, not only is the self an imputation on the uh, aggregates, but the uh, karmic potentials and tendencies are imputations on, uh, in the scheme of the uh, 12 links, they are imputations on the consciousness. Uh, the various uh, Buddhist tenet systems are going to as was uh, mentioned in one of the questions, uh, going to formulate what type of consciousness they are imputations on, whether it's mental consciousness, whether it is uh, foundation consciousness, or alia uh, vinyana, whether it and how that's <coughs> defined 
Oh, so it's uh, defined very uh, differently in uh, different systems. And uh, also, uh, we can say that there are imputations on the clear light mind, or uh, Tsongkhapa uh, asserts that uh, actually they are imputations on the conventional me, which itself is an imputation on the uh, uh, five aggregates. So uh, makes it even a little bit more abstract than uh, that, so that uh, we have uh, a way of asserting uh, the uh, continuity of uh, karma and cause-effect, cause and effect that will be equally valid for sutra and tantra. So we have these various explanations and these tendencies, karmic tendencies and uh, karmic potentials are uh, imputations as well. So remember what an imputation was that, uh, and it's very difficult to really uh, uh, explain it as we have seen, let alone difficult to understand it and to uh, digest it in terms of our uh, behavior, how it will affect that. But uh, with these tendencies and habits, again, we have uh, many instances of a certain type of behavior. We use the example of drinking coffee. It can be uh, an example of... uh, uh, losing our temper, yelling at others, or it could be an example of uh, helping others, any type of uh, example of uh, uh, repetitive behavior. And each time that uh, we act in that way, of course, we're doing something different, slightly different, aren't we? But... uh, of course, we can get into the whole discussion of what we're doing and what we call it, etc. But uh, that's not the point uh, at this uh, juncture in the discussion. But uh, rather, uh, what we would, uh, what we're focusing on, is there is a tendency to repeat that action. So the tendency is an imputation on the continuum in which we have all these different uh, instances of acting in a similar type of way. So we can say that uh, there is a tendency to repeat that type of uh, behavior. It's based on uh, previous instances and the possibility that there will be future instances of a similar type of uh, behavior. That's the only way that we can posit that there is a tendency. If there are past instances and there's still the possibility for future instances. Now, if there is no way to activate the karmic potential 
then is there the possibility of future repetitions of that type of uh, behavior? Is there? No. So if there's no possibility for a future recurrence, can we say that there's still a potential for a future occurrence? No. So that's the way that we get rid of this uh, karmic potentials and uh, tendencies by uh, achieving a true stopping of anything that would cause them to become activated, then all you can say is that uh, there were previous tendencies, but there's no longer a presently happening tendency that can generate uh, not yet happening occurrences of that type of uh, behavior. And we saw that uh, going down very, very deeply in our analysis that uh, it's this misconception about the self that is uh, uh, behind throwing out this net of me and mine on our feelings and what we've experienced and uh, so on, that uh, then we have this uh, thirsting for it in terms of the level of happiness or unhappiness that we experience and for the object that uh, we have experienced this uh, with. So that's basically how we uh, not only stop creating more karmic aftermath, but uh, also uh, get rid of the uh, previously built up karmic aftermath that uh, has been as an imputation on the continuum of, we'll just call it consciousness, the way that it's called in uh, uh, the 12 links uh, from beginning of this time. All right? So just digest that for a moment. That's basically how we're going to stop the recurrence of uh, these 12 links that describe uncontrollably recurring rebirth. That's how we gain liberation. And of course, there needs to be a motivation behind it of why we're doing this. And that's this uh, renunciation. Renunciation is more literally a determination. It's a determination to be free. That's actually what the word in Sanskrit and Tibetan means. To become certain. Definitely, I want to get out. Enough already. This is really boring. So unless we really want to attain liberation, we're obviously not going to work sincerely for it. And then that determination to be free is transferred to others. That's called compassion. That uh, we really determine that they can be free. They must get free. And all of that is... contingent on or connected with, dependent on, becoming convinced that it is possible to attain liberation. This is not just a nice wish. 
in order for this whole uh, um, method to work, we need to uh, be convinced that it is possible to gain liberation. And we can only become convinced of that when we uh, learn what is the method. And we become convinced that the method, if applied properly, will bring about the true stopping of rebirth, the third noble truth. So that means that uh, it's very important and very helpful to learn about these 12 links and to see how they operate. So many different aspects of the teachings uh, come here together in this discussion of the 12 links. Is that ignorance, that state of not knowing how we exist, is that uh, an intrinsic part of the mind, of our mental activity, or is it something that can be gotten rid of? And can it be gotten rid of uh, permanently, forever, so that it never recurs, not just suppress it? So these are many, many things that are necessary to really uh, work with and become convinced of in order to attain liberation or to go further to attain enlightenment. But the 12 links are very, very basic. And uh, as we've indicated, they have a very practical application in terms of how we deal with our feelings of happiness, unhappiness, being miserable, being sad, being bored, not feeling like doing anything, etc., gives us a clue of how to uh, handle that in a way in which we are not going to activate these karmic potentials so that uh, we do something stupid, basically, in response to how we're feeling. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy being happy and we don't feel sad when it's appropriate to feel sad. And it's healthy to feel sad. But we don't exaggerate. We exaggerate when we fit what we are experiencing into a category of happiness or unhappiness well, and it has a word, so okay, we can tell somebody I'm not feeling very happy or you know, I'm really happy, so I mean, that's, that's okay. We need that for communication. But uh, when we fit it into a box, when we make that category a box, and we think that it really fits into that box, and we add all sorts of further qualities, you know, that uh, the most terrible thing in the world, or it's the greatest thing in the world, and I don't want to ever lose it, and so on, all of that, then, of course, uh, we get into trouble. So all the things that we have been discussing can be fit together. It's a multi-dimensional puzzle in which the pieces fit together in many different ways. 
And that really is the whole um, journey in uh, following the Dharmic path is to learn more and more of these pieces and through thinking about it, analyzing, working with it, applying it in our lives, seeing how they fit together in different situations so that in any situation in which we are uh, having difficulty dealing with it, we are able to uh, have at our fingertips because we've repeated these things so often in daily meditation that uh, we're able to put it together which pieces are appropriate and if this doesn't work then there are other pieces that we can put together then we've really integrated the, uh, the Dharma and Eventually, you get to the point where you don't even have to think about it, just automatically. Going to be able to deal with uh, situations and not activate more compulsive behavior, more disturbing emotions, but just deal with things, with life, with a calm mind, clarity, and compassion. Compassion for ourselves, which we saw is called renunciation, <laughs> determination to be free ourselves from problems, and compassion for others, understanding that we're all equal. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be unhappy. Everybody experiences happiness and unhappiness by that same mechanism as we do. And they are perpetuating it through their not knowing how they actually do exist, and not knowing that their f- fantasies, their projections don't correspond to reality. And when we regard them as just being confused, that becomes much more uh, fitting that we have compassion for them rather than you ignorant person, and then we look down at them. I'm so much better. So, what do we need to do? We need to be attentive to how we're acting, speaking, and thinking. Remember, we made this uh, distinction between what are the mental factors that are involved with uh, shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha, a stilled and settled mind. Vipassana, an exceptionally perceptive state of mind. And in addition to perfect concentration, I mean, that's besides the point. What is involved is gross detection and subtle discernment. So gross detection is that uh, we use this example of just have, you know, sitting and watching a ballet 
and you just watch the whole thing and you have you know, some general impression of everything that's going on. That's gross detection. Or subtle discernment is that you're able to focus on each individual dancer, what they're actually doing simultaneously. So it's really, really in sharp focus. That's Vipassana, it's a state of mind. And we are focusing, trying to develop concentration on some sort of object or state of mind or the mind itself or whatever. I mean, there's so many different uh, possibilities. But not just with concentration, but with this understanding about the object. So here, what we want to do in daily life is to be attentive to how we're acting, how we're speaking, how we're thinking. That's what we want to be attentive of. As Atisha said, when, we're, when with others, Observe your speech when you are by yourself. Observe your thought. What's going on? And gross detection, you know, and what we can detect on a gross level is when our energy is disturbed. You're feeling nervous. It doesn't require that much sensitivity to feel to notice that you're feeling nervous and uneasy. And that is an indication of some disturbing emotion or attitude being present. Because that's part of the definition. You lose peace of mind and lose self-control. And we explained on a deeper level that the energy is going wild in the body. So, gross detection, hey, you know, I feel uneasy. I was uh, um, posting something on my social media, and I'm feeling a little bit nervous about it. Why? Now, subtle discernment, you know, what the actual details? Well, I'm really hoping that I'm going to get a lot of likes a lot of people, because I want people to like me, because I feel nobody loves me or whatever. And of course, it doesn't matter how many likes we, want, we get, we always want more. It's not enough. It doesn't really make us feel better. Otherwise, we would never post anything again. So, <laughs> that gross detection and subtle discernment, these are mental factors that uh, we need to employ in terms of uh, what's going on in our speech, in our behavior. Am I acting compulsively? And is that compulsive behavior being driven by some disturbing emotion, disturbing attitude? And then focus a little bit more what's behind it. In the mind training 
tradition from the seven-point mind training, it always says, place all the blame on one thing, self-cherishing. When we have this uh, misconception about how we exist, we imagine that we exist as this uh, findable entity this grossest level that doesn't change, is not affected by anything, you know, always the same, doesn't have any of these parts or anything like that, and can be, exist and be known by itself, and has some findable characteristic that makes me, me. When we imagine that that's how we exist, This is the self to be refuted. It's called the false self. And that is what we have self-cherishing about. Self-cherishing means that we only want everything for me. As if if I got everything, that would make me more secure. There's nothing to be made secure. This is the secret. There's nothing to be made secure. Change moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. But always remember not to over-refute. If we over-refute that I don't exist at all, the consequence of that is that it doesn't matter what I do because there's no cause and effect, so I can do anything. I can be cruel, I can be inconsiderate, doesn't matter, because I don't exist and you don't exist. So that clearly is not the Buddhist teaching. Remember, voidness and dependent arising, they come together. Because things don't exist in an impossible way, they function cause and effect functions in terms of not just physical things like kicking a ball but in terms of our behavior and what we experience. So all of this is comes from thinking about these 12 links and approaching it many, many different angles. So let's spend a little bit of time to reflect on what we might have learned from this. And then we have plenty of time for more questions since that's always very helpful. Just give you something to, some point to think about. Don't be concerned about me. Be concerned about our behavior and the consequences of it.
came. To make progress on the path, what uh, is going to be one of the main focuses as we progress deeper and deeper is the Four Noble Truths. And what we work with with the Four Noble Truths is not just the voidness of the Four Noble Truths themselves, but the voidness of the person who is experiencing the Four Noble Truths and the voidness of the mind that is experiencing the Four Noble Truths. So who is it that is experiencing suffering? Who is it that's experiencing the true causes of suffering? Who is it that is experiencing, you know, the true stopping, the absence of these causes and suffering? And who is it that is experiencing the true path, the true understanding that will bring that about? That's what you apply this to. The first two noble truths are the 12 links, basically. More an elaboration of that. Suffering and its causes. Getting rid of the 12 links with correct understanding. Those are the last two noble truths. True path and as a result of that, the attainment of the true stopping or true cessation of all this garbage. And all of that is taking place with mental activity, mind. So all these things fit together just to understand the true nature of the mind and so on. Okay, but what's the application of that? The application is the mind experiencing the Four Noble Truths, Buddha's basic, most fundamental teaching. That's the context. And the elaboration of the Four Noble Truths of the 12 links. Okay? So, what... Uh, Further questions you have? Yeah, in the back. You want to pass the microphone, please? Do you have the microphone there? You mentioned... Uh the fruition of the karma and the changing of habitual patterns, the force of habit, how we can not uh, create further karma. Uh, my question is, uh, I heard some different explanations on the ripening of karma, and I was wondering about your view. On the one explanation I heard, there is the storehouse consciousness, the alaya vijnana, and the karmic seeds, the bija, are stored there. And my question is, how... What kind of practice can one do to avoid the ripening of the karma? Can the seeds be burnt? What's one explanation I heard? Or how can I remain 
strong in the practice so the karma doesn't ripen. Well, how do we prevent the karmic aftermath, these tendencies and potentials and habits from ripening is exactly what we've been discussing. Whether we conceive of these imputations as being having their basis for imputation, the uh, alia vinyana or mental consciousness or clear light mind or the self is not, I think, so relevant. There are many different explanations, so fine, depending on uh, uh, many other factors, what will make, uh, what will be easiest for each individual person to work with. So that's not so important. What's important is wherever, whatever basis is as an imputation on, we don't want to activate it. And as I said, we activate it with the links eight and nine. So this uh, thirsting or clinging, in terms of uh, what we're feeling, the, the ripening from the karma, so from previous karma, previous karmic aftermath ripens into this feeling of happy or unhappy. So now, while we are experiencing that, there are other karmic potentials and tendencies that we don't want to activate. We activate them in terms of how we deal with what we're feeling. And then the object to which we, with which we are uh, focusing on, with that, that which we are experiencing with that feeling, and then the me who is experiencing that. So if we understand how we are projecting all sorts of nonsense onto the conventional me, making it into this solid thing that never changes and you know, is sitting inside my head and talking. The author of that voice in my head is if there's a little person sitting inside there talking. It's pretty weird, impressing the buttons of how we act. We realize that this is a cartoon, this is silly. Then we don't throw that net of me and mine onto what we're feeling, and poor me. You know, now what we're feeling is going to be not affected by anything and, you know, just come from nowhere. I don't deserve this. All this type of uh, attitude. And then we don't make a big deal out of what we're feeling. Or the object with which we are feeling that. So in that way, we don't activate the karma regardless of how we conceive what is the basis for the imputation. Okay? Anyone else? Yeah. So um, I was. Uh, is it quite low? You hear me? Hear me good now? Yes. Yes. Um, so I was uh, thinking about this. Um, so you feel 
you don't feel like get like um, helping some somebody or you don't feel like something, but then you have the sense I should do it. So you, you like you said, so you do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that mm, there are three factors I'm thinking about. Sometimes the feeling of not doing it, oh, I really don't want to help that uh, woman with that uh, wolf attacking her, mm -hmm. but I should. <laughs> so then you have a very strong feeling. But then there is also this this force of what I sh uh, so what I, I I do what is right anyway, and I, I wonder this the strength of this is this related to like uh, good merit or like in the English word um, you have this or they use more maybe more before like a, you have a character strength or you have a good character you are faced with various temptations but you are like um, is this almost like a muscle like a what? Like a uh, like a muscle, yeah, like something that. Um, so this, so what? Is this, so what? Um, sort of a, a, a factor that uh, can. Uh, so I mean, even if you know that, uh, so what? You, you, if it's weak, you can be overpowered by the by the emotions anyway. Uh, sometimes maybe you identify yourself with um, the temptation so hard that you don't even try to mm. to do anything else. But I mean, sometimes we know what we are doing is wrong, uh, like according to to our our own standard. Um, so so the sort of the so what um, factor or. The, the ones that wants to do what is right anyway mm -hmm. must must have uh, some sort of potential for strength or something right when we learn about the mental factors there are according to the Abhidharma teachings there are two mental factors that are always present in, uh, with constructive behavior. One is a sense of self-dignity that I uh, have so much respect for myself that I wouldn't act in this stupid way, this disturbed way. And we experience that with it just doesn't feel right. You explained it as a character trait. But it's a sense of self-worth, which is very important to have, actually, that I think enough of myself that how could I act like this? Often that's helped in our practice by imagining that our teacher is always with us. 
how can I act like a jerk in front of my teacher? You know, pick my nose or whatever. I mean, you just wouldn't do that. And then <laughs> the other factor is uh, uh, a sense of uh, a larger identification that uh, if I act like this, how does it reflect on my family, my teacher, um, my country, uh, my uh, religion? You know, I'm giving a bad name to, you know, all of Buddhism. You know, I'm supposed to be a Buddhist, and uh, I'm acting like this. I get drunk, and I, you know, get into a big fight. How does that reflect not just on me, but how does it reflect on the others that I have uh, respect for? So that also causes us to act in a constructive way, which means refraining from being destructive or doing something positive. There's two aspects of it. So these are there. You mentioned the word should, should implies uh, judgment. I should do this, you know, in order to be a good boy or a good girl. And if I don't do that, I'm bad. Uh, this we don't want to uh, give any importance to. Because that's based on a misconception that there's a judge. And this concept of good and bad and reward and punishment. But uh, when we analyze making a decision, somebody that needs help, right? You gave the example. And uh, I think if I heard correctly that a woman being attacked by a wolf, is that the example that you said or is my distinguishing doesn't matter what the example is, you know, somebody being robbed. Yeah, so there should be some incentive not to go there by your natural, like I was thinking. Right, so, the, the, so somebody being attacked, let's say, uh, and there are things that we can analyze. Obviously, in a severe situation, you don't have the time to analyze, but uh, this is in general how we make decisions. What do I feel like doing? What do I want to do? And what do I need to do? What do I feel like doing? You know, I'll give an example where it's clear that these are uh, different factors. I'm on a diet and I, uh, somebody offers me some delicious uh, pastry. I feel like having it, but I want to stick on my, to my diet, and I need to stick to the diet because I'm overweight and it's affecting my health. I need to keep to the diet. So then you examine the reasons for each of these. What do I feel like doing? 
well, it's because of greed that I feel like eating this pastry and having a second one. So that's not a valid reason. What do I want to do? I want to stay to the, to the diet because I care about myself. And what do I need to do? Well, do you want to stick to the diet so that you will have a better figure so you will be more attractive? Or is it because of uh, health reasons? I mean, you see, what, what is the reason? And then you evaluate the different reasons for what you feel like doing, what you want to do. I feel like running away you know, and not getting involved. I want to... Um, you know, be able to help, but I really can't because I'm afraid. And, but I need to help because this person is suffering. So you, you know, evaluate these things and which, what is the most valid reason for each of these choices? That's how you make a decision. But of course, in an emergency, you don't have time to do that whole evaluation. But again, if we have practice with this uh, gross detection and uh, subtle discernment of what actually is going on internally, it helps us to uh, be a little bit uh, clearer. But of course, it's very difficult to, to know what to do. For that, we need to be a Buddha, to know what would be the consequences of uh, anything that we do. You never know. You could have two people speaking very, very loudly and yelling at each other. I have neighbors like that an elderly couple, and you hear them, it sounds as though they're screaming at each other. But actually, they're not arguing at all. That's just the way that they speak. And they're old, and they can't hear very well. And they shout at each other. <laughs> so again, our misconceptions. <laughs> you know, there's some cultures that... Uh, you know, when they speak they, to other people not from that culture, it sounds very aggressive, whereas it's not. That's just the way they speak. So, difficult to evaluate. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, thinking of the example he used with um, saving the woman from the wolf. Mm -hmm. And then I was wondering, um, because you hear, you hear sometimes studies of people saving people, you have, to take, you have no time for judgment. There was yeah. a little boy. No, it's on. You just need to speak more loudly into it. I will speak more. Uh, in relation to the story of the of saving the woman from the wolf, you don't have the time to think. But you read sometimes, so you hear studies 
where people have acted in a way that you would never think. There was, for example, I think in Holland, a study of a little boy, 12 years old, who saw an elderly woman with a rollator crossing the, tra the um, uh, railway, and she was stuck, and the train was coming. And he rushed and just got her across. And there was another study I read of a man, who a child who fell down on the, on the metro, and the train was coming, and jumped uh, in and uh, and pick it up. So then I was wondering, could it be that there is some basic goodness in us uh, uh, in spite of karma? Or well, that we have that makes us act in, in this his, way. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, always uh, points out that uh, according to the latest scientific uh, investigations, the nature of uh, uh, people is kindness. There's compassion, it's uh, sort of biologically wired in terms of uh, the uh, survival of the species and uh, you know, the mother taking care of the baby and uh, stuff like that. So that is part of it. But uh, again, one has to look in terms of karmic habits and tendencies. I mean, we might be so kind in terms of... Uh, Instinctively, you know, we want to save that uh, person, but also we can, without thinking, smack the mosquito. So, which one is, you know, <laughs> stronger? It's not uh, uh, universal. And that same person could do that. So many, many different karmic potentials. I think that's one of the aspects of uh, karma that uh, not so easy to deal with, which comes from uh, beginningless mind. If we have beginningless mind, that means that we have built up the karmic potentials for everything. Literally everything. So then, what gets activated? This is very difficult. You know, what gets activated? We've talked about what does the activation. But which specific karmic tendencies or seeds get activated? That is dependent on millions of conditions. It can be the, you know, and there's not just one condition. So all the external things that are going on, the company that we're with, what we did earlier in the day, so many things are going to affect which of those karmic tendencies are going to be activated in any moment. So dependent arising on causes and conditions and parts, all the different parts of this, it's enormously complex. So in one situation with people, you know, you have the karmic tendency to help others, and it's so strong that instinctively it appears to us that we just help that person who uh, was uh, having difficulty on the railroad track, but there's also another karmic tendency to kill anything that annoys us. So a mosquito, 
it almost to me sounds as if our practice won't have any effect. It almost seems then from your elaboration of this that our our uh, trying to be on the path and trying to uh, reduce our negative karma will not actually be very effective. No, it will efficient. be effective, but it has to be sustained for a very, very long time. If we look at the sutra teachings, three countless eons of building up positive force. That's a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So whether it's three or it's two and a half or it's... That doesn't matter. The, The point being that given beginningless time and beginningless buildup of negative potential, it's going to take a tremendous amount of uh, counteracting force to overcome it. That's the point. And don't expect it to be simple or easy. So these large numbers that we find in the Mahayana Sutras, some people take them literally. Okay. But uh, also we can just, you know, it helps us to develop a Mahayana mind, having these large numbers, that we are thinking of huge numbers of beings. You know, Buddha teaches and there are, you know, 25 million asuras and 20, you know, 37 billion, you know, devas and I mean, all these huge numbers. It helps to open the mind. You know, all sentient beings, the actual number is not that crucial. So three countless eons. Okay, it's going to take a, a long time. So don't expect it to be easy. And, of course, it'll always go up and down. That's, that We learn that in terms of uh, our moods. That's the nature of samsara. It goes up and down. High fall to low, low falls to high. I mean, that's how it's traditionally said. It just means that things go up and down. So there's nothing special about that. That's just the way it is. Long, sustained effort. But when we know the weak point in these 12 links, it's how we conceive of ourselves and others. And from a Mahayana point of view, the way we conceive of ourselves and others is, you know, the mistaken way is how we conceive everything, misconceive of everything on a deeper level. But this is the real troublemaker. And we have built up the habit of that, of not only projecting it, but believing in it. No beginning. because of our limited bodies and limited minds. Think about that. It's confusing. There's this voice going on in our head. So there must be somebody inside there talking. It just seems like that. And I close my eyes, and it seems as though nothing else exists But I still exist. There's still somebody talking inside there. So it's confusing. 
in a limited body. I can only see out of these holes in the two holes in the front of the, my head. Can't see what's behind. So we have what I refer to as periscope vision. Periscope, you know, you have a submarine, a U-2 that's underneath the sea, and you just have a pipe that goes up and a little, you know, uh, lens that can only see a little, you know, what's directly in front. That's how we view the world. I see you here in front of me. I have no idea. It just appears as though you arrived out of nowhere, out of nothing, with no background, no family, no home, no what you were doing before. Just pop, there you are. Self-established, that's called. Established all by yourself, independently of what you were doing before, or of anything about you, your parents or, or whatever. The best example is a website. Perfect example. You know, I have a, a big website, and we put in tens of thousands, if not more, hours of work of hundreds of people on this thing. For, you know, we started more than 20 years ago preparing this thing. And you have your phone or laptop or uh, tablet, whatever it is that you're looking on, and a page comes up on the screen as if it came out of nowhere. Self-established, all by itself. No appearance whatsoever of all the work that went into it. It doesn't appear like that at all. It appears as though, bop, there it is. That's how everything appears to us. That is the false appearance. And our mind makes it appear like that because that's all we can see. We're limited. Because of limited hardware. Our body and minds are limited hardware. And what we want to stop with the 12 links is getting more and more limited hardware. And then our karma is the software that is playing on this hard, in this hardware. It's an interesting way of looking at it. So that appearance of things being self-established, not dependently arisen on causes, conditions, parts, all this sort of stuff, is our ignorance. When we believe that corresponds to reality, it doesn't. But it appears like that, so it's deceptive. And we believe it. We believe that it corresponds to reality. That's the first thing that we have to get rid of, is that belief. Therefore, it's like an illusion, like a bubble and so on. It appears to be solid, but it's not. And then, gradually the more ingrained it becomes that uh, we don't believe in this nonsense, the mind will eventually stop uh, projecting it. Why? Because we've broken the continuity, the momentum, 
by focusing on voidness, no such thing. So the absence of something that corresponds to this nonsense. So when you're focusing on that absence, without making a thing out of that absence, it breaks the continuity and the momentum and the inertia of the mind projecting this nonsense. And the more that we, more instances or time that you have of focusing like that on that voidness, then that uh, uh, the mind will eventually stop projecting it because you have built up another habit, another uh, way of experiencing things. That's how you get the mind to stop projecting all this nonsense. And if you look at the teachings of the three countless eons, it's the first countless eon just to get to that stage where you get that non-conceptual cognition of voidness. It's two more countless eons of working with that before you get the mind to stop projecting this garbage. But when we understand how it's done, then you become confident that it works. If you don't understand how it works, then it's just faith. Some people can be sustained by faith, but many people, after a while, start to doubt, what am I doing? You look at the the definition of valid cognition. Not only valid cognition, but uh, an apprehension. Something which is uh, what we need is accurate and decisive understanding. Both accurate and decisive. Then it is firm. accurate, it is possible to attain enlightenment. I know what, I have some idea of what it is. Purity of the mind, etc. I mean, you can recite purity of the mind forever, but uh, we don't understand it. And we're not confident, decisive about it. Then, shaky, not stable. So what we're always aiming for is stable understanding, stable attainment, stable realization, accurate, decisive, no indecisive wavering, is it this, is it that, and so on. Yeah. Anyone else? Um, on the way to Kalmatashiling today, I was driving on the. Hello? Yes, I tried to. Can you hear? Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I was driving, and uh, in the fast lane, there was like uh, four cars passing. Uh, the first one was a brand new Lamborghini. 
and then you had a Porsche, and then you had a Ferrari, and then you had like a really nice Audi. This is Norway, rich this people. This is yeah, <laughs> and and of course, and then I just I'm just thinking, okay, this is like an op opportunity, mandala offering, or something like this. But then uh, my sort of immediate response was that I got quite annoyed by this sort of showing of. Um, and I got all this, of course, I could uh, see in myself, I had all this sort of uh, ideas of who would these people be, and maybe I wouldn't really, and then I thought, like, if I had the money, I would never spend all this money on this type of car, and etc. Yeah. I don't know, like, um, meeting this sort of wealth, and this uh, showing off of this wealth, and then and, and do you have any uh, suggestions so how to sort of work <laughs> with this in a constructive well, manner. Well, you are fitting <laughs> all of these people into the category of people who drive expensive cars. So all these instances fit into that category. You are viewing them conceptually through that category and you have ascribed certain uh, characteristics to that category. These are terrible people and they're just showing off and they're arrogant and so on. So you have defined the category with, you know, I mean, not just the category itself, but the characteristics of that category. And that doesn't necessarily uh, correspond to each of these people. Let me give an example, right. a lovely example, from uh, uh, when I first went to uh, India, uh, which was uh, 1969, it was a little bit before the hippie invasion of uh, India, but there were already a few people, and I was living with a Tibetan monk, and there were some Westerners who dressed in Tibetan clothes, you know, the chuba and the big gao around their neck, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff that uh, they had that was easily available, silk ro you know, robes and brocade and all of that. And... Uh, I thought this was ridiculous. They were in these costumes. So I asked my uh, Tibetan monk friend what he thought of that. What did Tibetans think of that? And his reply was that these people like Tibetan clothes. <laughs> no judgment whatsoever. <laughs> Just very... So these people who drive these expensive cars, they like them. That's uh, Okay. They like them. There's no value judgment there. <laughs> there are also beautiful sunsets as well. And I used to go outside and watch the sunset, and he could not comprehend why I wanted to watch the sunset, that this was something beautiful. Just the sunset. <laughs> Normal. Yeah. I could not resist. Um, I was feeling uh, a fuel, a fueling of the car up in the mountains, and there were three pumps. And then there was this uh, one of the types of cars that you had seen on Spetty, uh, beautiful uh, uh, blue. And the man was uh, covering all the three pumps. 
You it know, was, there was a beautiful a small, blue. The car was beautiful. One of those big cars. And yeah. the man was filling, uh, fueling up his car. And he was placing the car so it covered all the three pumps. So oh, no nobody one, could take so the pump. No one else. Okay. So I tried to say, kind of go out and say to him, um, yeah, I would, uh, could you please move on a little bit? Uh-huh. And he said, I'm filling up my car. Mm-hmm. That was his response. <laughs> I can never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, people don't really, I mean, people can be very inconsiderate. That's true. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh gave uh, very good advice when uh, someone is uh, doing something that is uh, very annoying and very difficult. What he said was that uh, you approach them and you say, uh, I have a problem. My problem is that uh, I need to fill my car. I need to make an appointment. And uh, can you help me? And so rather than scolding the person that you are bad, you, you pig, you are occupying the three uh, filling pumps, you give them the opportunity to be generous, to be giving. And that changes the whole atmosphere. Can you help me? I have this problem. I need to. I, I need to make my appointment. Right. So this is something that can be applied in many, many uh, uh, situations, many circumstances, and actually is very, very wise advice. Give the other person the opportunity to be generous to help. Anything else? Yeah. Yesterday, you spoke about uh, subtle consciousness. Trouble? Subtle, subtle consciousness. And so <laughs> consciousness energy? Yes. <laughs> Yes. And uh, mental factors. Yes. So in the Dharma puzzle. In the Dharma what? Puzzle. 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 And then um, karmic uh, tendencies and uh, mental factors. So in the Dharma puzzle. Puzzle. I found it would be very neat if uh, these um, aspects of the unenlightened mind correspond with uh, um, Dharmakaya and Sambhogakaya, the consciousness energy, and then the uh, karmic tendencies uh, and uh, mental factors with Nirmanakaya. When we talk about mind, mental activity, whether it is the mental activity of a samsaric being or a liberated being, an arhat, or an enlightened being, a Buddha, there are always um, 
certain mental factors that are present. For instance, concentration, uh, discriminating awareness, some feeling of happy or unhappy. With a Buddha, they're not limited. Buddha doesn't feel the type of uh, uh, deluded feelings that we do, or ordinary happiness and so on. A Buddha has uh, great bliss. Buddha also has five aggregates. But they're not samsaric aggregates. But a Buddha is able to, as you know, consciousness, what functions as consciousness is a clear light level of consciousness, but there's consciousness. Does the same thing as any sort of mental activity does, but without confusion, without making appearances of truly established or self-established existence. There's feeling, there's distinguishing. A Buddha can distinguish one disciple from another and knows what to teach each disciple individually. There's distinguishing. There's this great bliss. There's other mental factors, concentration, compassion, etc. Doesn't have the the deluded mental factors. It certainly has the constructive ones. So that's the case, regardless of which kaya we're talking about: Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya. So that's there. Dharmakaya fulfills Buddha's own aim to obtain an omniscient mind and no you know, cause and effect and everything so it can help others, obtain true stopping and all of that. So that fulfills Buddha's own aim. And the rupakaya, the form bodies, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, are fulfilling the aims of others. Sambhogakaya for Arya Bodhisattvas and Nirmanakaya for those who are not yet Arya Bodhisattvas but have the karmic connection to actually meet with the Buddha. But there's concentration present with all of them. It's all working with that subtlest level of mind, but that subtlest level of mind, that clear light mind, is uh, no longer has as an imputation, or the me that's an imputation on it. There's still a me, conventional me. Shakyamuni Buddha is not Maitreya Buddha. They're still individuals. And they each have, people have different karmic connections to meet with Shakyabuni or to meet with Maitreya. So that indicates that they're individuals. They're not the same. Their attainment is the same, but uh, they're not the same as persons. And there's that subtlest energy, which is uh, what is going to be the uh, substance, in a sense, if you want to use the gross word, for the appearance 
Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, that's there. So one needs to, what should I say, look a little bit more deeply. You can, there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence with the three kayas, but you can see how all of these uh, aspects are, are there with the three kayas, but not the disturbing, deluded, destructive mental factors. They're not there. And a Buddha doesn't have the gross levels of consciousness and all of that which are basically limited. That's part of the limited hardware of a rebirth, is that you have these limited types of consciousness. Okay? Buddha has only clear light consciousness, which is able to perceive all objects not just visual consciousness that can only perceive sights. It's not limited. Anyone else? If not, then we will end with the dedication. I think whatever understanding, I mean, I hope that what, you, you know, what we can take home from this is an understanding that uh, we are perpetuating our own samsaric existence. And we are perpetuating it by overreacting to our moods, our feelings, and so on. And about our, we're perpetuating it because of our misconception about me and you, how we exist. And we need to try to see through this misconception and not believe the, the, you know, the um, deceptive ways that our minds make things appear. I'm the only one, I, you know, I'm the only one that's important. I have to have my way. Everybody has to like me. Not everybody like Buddha. Why should everybody like me? Very helpful to remember. <laughs> uh, they crucified Jesus. That's another one to help remember. And he was a pretty nice guy. So what do I expect? <laughs> and uh, work on it. It's going to take time. Three difficult things, remember from the seven-point uh, mind training, to be mindful of what the opponents are, to be mindful, to apply them, and to be mindful. Mindful means to remember, to sustain them. Three difficult things. That's what we have to work on. So we end with the dedication, whatever positive force, whatever understanding has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for all beings to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. Thank you.